Thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together here. I thank you that our uh, our AC is working down here. It's really, really hot in Texas right now, and uh, it would be really difficult to do this if it was too warm in here. We've all grown accustomed to being comfortable, and uh, I don't know how people did it in previous generations when they had to gather together and it was hot. I guess they just fanned themselves. But uh, thank you that this is working well. Uh, thank you that our air conditioning upstairs got fixed. And I just pray that that lasts. I pray that you'll open the word up to us and that we'll be receptive to it. And uh, just uh, I know that when your word goes forth, it will accomplish what you intend for it to accomplish. We just need to have the right kind of soil in our hearts for the seed of the word to plant itself. So I pray that will be the case for everyone here in the room and for those joining us online. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we finished up uh, last week with John 7, 44. We're going to start with 45, and I'm going to read down to verse 52, and I will tell you why I'm not reading verse 53. Actually, I might read it, but I'll tell you why uh, verse 53 is not going to be included. In fact... I'll tell you a secret. We're not going to include John 8, 1 through 11 either. <gasps> and I'll tell you why. But I preached a whole sermon on it. So if you want to go back and get it's the woman caught in adultery, I preached a whole sermon on that. But I'm going to tell you why I'm not going to include it in our study of John in just a moment. So let's read John 7, 44 through 52. And some of them, this is the people listening to Jesus, wanted to arrest him. So we earlier in the chapter, we uh, saw that the religious officials sent um, basically their, uh, their policemen, if you will, the temple police, to arrest Jesus, right? And the temple police are just sitting out there listening to Jesus. So it makes sense that it says here that some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, that is, the chief priests and Pharisees said to the officers, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken in this way. The Pharisees then replied to them, you have not been led astray to, have been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. However, now we're going to run into one religious official that if he didn't believe in him, he was awfully close. Nicodemus, the one who came to him before being one of them. Remember, Nicodemus was who Jesus spoke to in John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to them, Our law does not judge a person unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So we've already observed that there was a definite um, uh, bias against Samaria, right? So down south is Judea and Jerusalem is the capital city, right? And then you go a little further north and you have Samaria and you go a little further north and you have Galilee. Well, the Samaritans were ethnically different and religiously different than the Jewish people. So there are some obvious 
um, uh, possibilities for bigotry there. The Galileans were religiously the same, right? But they were looked down on anyway. Nobody could touch Jesus until he allowed it. That's what we've seen. Now, uh, on Sunday morning, we've gotten to the point where Jesus has entered into his hour of the Passion, and uh, we're going to start uh, looking at chapter 13 next week where Jesus is at the Lord's Supper table. And, of course, it won't be too long. Uh, it's, it will be chapter 18 when we see that Jesus finally does get arrested. But until he allowed it, until his hour arrived, until he was ready, it wasn't going to happen. He would not allow himself to be arrested or executed until his passion arrived, the hour, the, the, this period of time where he would suffer for our sins on the cross. The religious leaders had sent officers to arrest Jesus, and they'd been listening to him speak. They left in amazement. Um, so I think when you listen to someone speak that speaks with authority— and who's obviously speaking God's word, there is a sense of amazement or awe that can come in there. I remember some years ago um, when I believed that God called me to preach. It was one year after I got saved, one year after I gave my life to Jesus. So you guys have heard various lengths of that testimony on Easter Sunday of uh, 1978, I gave my life to Christ publicly at the North Phoenix Baptist Church. Almost one year later, this was, that was in late March that year, uh, one year later almost, in early March, there was an eight-day, they used to call them crusades, right? Um, that's not a term that is looked upon favorably any longer, but it was an eight-day meeting at our church. And this fellow came named, named James Robison. Have you ever heard of this guy? He actually has a, a television studio in the mid-cities, I think in Euless. And uh, he doesn't go and do these crusades and speak publicly like that anymore. At least to my knowledge, he doesn't. He just primarily does this uh, television ministry. He donates a lot of money or uh, he is responsible for uh, digging a lot of clean water wells in Africa and, and so does a lot of interesting things. Um, he got involved politically for a short period of time. Uh, so going back again to this time period when he came to our church, that was 1979, March of 79. About a year after that, James Robinson got involved in Jerry Falwell's moral majority. So he was kind of moving in all these different circles for a while. But I will just say this. Um, two occasions that I was exposed to James Robinson preaching. The first time was, of course, in 79 when he came to our church. And this guy would preach for an hour, easy, and hold everybody's attention the entire time, right? Um, he preached at our church on Sunday morning, which Pastor Jackson never let that happen, but he preached on Sunday morning. He preached on Sunday night, and he preached all the way through uh, the next weekend, I think all the way through the next Saturday. So it was an eight-day crusade. Um, when he preached on Sunday morning and he gave an invitation, literally half the church went forward. I mean, there was, there was no more aisle any longer. It was just, you know, you just, 
you, you were just stuck, stranded right there. Sunday night he preached, and I remember that the topic of the message was apathy, right? That you can just get to the place where you, you know, your love for Jesus has grown cold. You just don't seem to care like you used to care. And even though I'd only been a believer for a year, I was really convicted by that message. And once again, I just, you know, is one of these guys that spoke so powerfully from, from the Lord and from the Word, right? And so I went forward that night, and uh, once I had sat down and talked about my recommitment, um, I told the fellow that I, whose name was Mike, if I remember correctly, I don't remember his last name, but my counselor was a, 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 another member of our church who was older than me. And at this point, I was a junior in high school, um, and I said, and you know what, by the way, I think the Lord is calling me to preach. How do you like that? By the way, <laughs> I, I came forward because I'm convicted that I need to rededicate my life and I don't want to be apathetic. But by the way, I think the Lord's called me to preach and I could go into a whole, you know, message on that idea. But my point here is to show you that when someone speaks from the Lord and they speak the word, um, it can just be so powerful that you, you can't help but respond. Now, move forward beyond when James Robinson was involved with the moral majority. Um, he had a very interesting testimony. He had a, a period of time where he had just gotten into some uh, serious spiritual warfare in his life and things were just not going well. And then he rededicated his life, this big time evangelist, right? Rededicated his life. And so now I'm at a much smaller church in Waco while I'm uh, attending Baylor University. Uh, it was called Highland Baptist Church. I'm sure it's still there. And James Robinson came and spoke there. Um, and I'm not kidding. The message was two and a half or three hours long. Okay. Um, and I'd been sitting there for so long listening to this guy preach that I finally looked down at my watch. I felt like I had been in a coma. I was like, how long have I been sitting here? And it wasn't because I was bored. It was because I was kind of amazed that I didn't realize what, I didn't even know what time it was. I looked at my watch and it had already been an hour. I was like, oh my word. You're just like, Ugh, you know? And um, this is what I would imagine somebody listening to Jesus. This is Jesus. This isn't just one of his servants. You're just hanging on those words, right? <laughs> so here are these officers. Oh, we're going to arrest Jesus. And he's saying controversial things. And, and then they're like, uh, how do you arrest a guy like that? He's, he just, you know. And it wasn't because Jesus was like, Get back from me. I will call angels from heaven, you know, to devour you or consume you or something. No, I was just, Jesus is just teaching. And, you know, they, yeah, never has a man spoken this way, they said. Well, the Pharisees were just as amazed that the officers were so smitten by Jesus. You see, the Pharisees weren't going and listening to Jesus. They're like, ah, he doesn't have anything to say that we want to listen to. Um. They said, you have not been led astray too, have you? They had automatically come to a knee-jerk reaction. Jesus didn't go to one of our schools, and Jesus does not uphold our rules. Therefore, he must be from the devil. It's kind of like today, right, with politics. 
If you're on the right, everybody on the left is the devil or the devil's spawn or evil. If you're on the left, everybody on the right is, you know, evil, racist, whatever. Okay. It's like, you know, we, we can't just talk to each other anymore. We you know, just hate each other and call them. But if you actually sat down and listened to people, that's what's missing, right? In the whole social media conversation, they're not really conversations. It's kind of like two people sitting on opposite sides of the room and they have slingshots and they're shooting at each other, you know? Uh, or like, you know, back in the day when I was in uh, classrooms, the, um, we used to shoot spitballs at each other. Do you know what those are? <laughs> this is a teacher. You remember that? So, you know, you'd, you had to have a rubber band and you, you folded up a piece of paper. And you had to fold it so it would come over the rubber band, but then you had to get it wet. And I mean, those things hurt when they hit you. And it's kind of like some of these posts that people, you know, it's just like, you know, they just fling these things at each other. There's no intent to listen, to pay attention, to have a conversation, to have a healthy debate, right? That's not going to happen. Well, Nicodemus, who is spoken of at the end of this um, pericope, this section of Scripture, was willing to do that. And he encouraged them to do that. He said, wait, you need to hear this man out. Does our law condemn someone before we hear them out? No, they don't want to hear him out. They've already made up their minds. We don't want to be confused by the facts. We've already made up our minds, right? Um, so, uh, you know, we can learn from Nicodemus. He was willing to go and interview Jesus personally. And we don't know whether he ever became a full-fledged disciple of Jesus or not. But here we see him standing up for Jesus. And then uh, we hear from, not we hear from, but we hear about Nicodemus one other time in Scripture. And it's at the end of John. Do you know what we find him doing? He's going with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus' body after he died, and he's bringing the spices to properly embalm him. Well, of course, they never had time to do that. John's gospel says they brought 100 pounds of spices with them to embalm Jesus, right? Well, based on what we know about that Sunday morning and the women going, right, they were going, they brought spices, um, you know, there was no time. Jesus probably died somewhere in the vicinity of 3 p.m. to get him off the cross, his body off the cross. And to, the, the tomb was nearby, but still, this is, you know, forgive the pun, but this is dead weight moving this body um, to this tomb. Right. And so you're you're just you're really kind of slap dashing this together. You know, you've got these cloths. And so you're going to you know, you're going to you know, do a, a basic job of wrapping these cloths around him um, and putting him in the tomb. And we know they at least put a facial covering over him because uh, in the, the gospel, it indicates clearly that the, the burial cloths were just laying there. And the way the language is, it's, it's as if Jesus' body somehow just dissolved through them. In other words, there weren't strips of linen just lying all around, you know, like somebody was like, oh man, I got to work out of this. How am I going to get out of these? It wasn't like Lazarus, right? Lazarus came forth from the tomb. Uh, now we haven't gotten there on uh, Wednesday yet, verse by verse, but we just looked at Lazarus 
two weeks ago, and then we saw the video of that on Sunday morning, but Lazarus was wrapped up. So Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. But they didn't have to unwrap Jesus. When they looked in the tomb, those burial cloths were just laying there, right? As though his body somehow just dissolved through them, right? And it says that the facial cloth was folded and lying by itself to one side. Very, very interesting. But the point is, there, uh, there wasn't time to embalm Jesus with 100 pounds of spices. The point for what I'm uh, getting at here is that it was Nicodemus who cared enough to bring those spices. That's probably, you know, what he had been saving for his family, right? Um, so it speaks well of Nicodemus. Again, we don't ever hear about him beyond this, so we don't know if he became a disciple, but he very definitely uh, considered Jesus to be uh, a good man, an important rabbi. You know, he told Jesus, we know, you know, that, that you're a good teacher. No one can do these things that you do unless they're from God. And that's when Jesus, of course, said what to Nicodemus? Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. I'm so glad that you recognize the things that, no, what did he say to Nicodemus? He said, unless you're born again, you can't perceive the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born of water and the spirit, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he told Nicodemus, right? In spite of that and Nicodemus questioning of him, Nick says, hey, why don't we listen to this guy? Um, but they rejected uh, Nicodemus, uh, his overture on the behalf of Jesus, because they thought they knew enough about this Nazarene. As we've seen, they didn't take the time to do their research, either about a prophet coming out of Galilee or of Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem. Remember, there was a prophet that came out of Galilee. It was Jonah. They said, search the scriptures. You will see no prophet arises out of Galilee. Jonah came from Galilee, right? If you remember, this is a couple of weeks ago I talked about this, I think, or maybe it was last week. Um, Jonah was from gath Hefir in the tribal allotment uh, that was given to Zebulun, and that's in the region that we know as Galilee. Um, and interestingly, it is likely that Nazareth, where Jesus was from, was in that same region of Zebulun, right? So these guys didn't know what they were talking about, but they were very sure of themselves. It reminds us of a lot of people today, okay? Well, Jesus had already said to uh, these religious leaders, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is those scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And this is why Jesus could go so far as to say, you know, you do the deeds of your father and then say you are of your father, the devil, who was a liar and the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. So he really sees that these religious people are inspired by uh, the enemy and not God. Okay. So I didn't read John seven fifty three which says, and everyone went to his home. And then John 8, 1 through 11 is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Okay? Most of us know that story. Um, you know, they, they bring a woman to Jesus who is caught in the very act of adultery. And they say, the law says to stone such a woman. Jesus bends down and writes on the ground. 
And then he stands up and he says, let the one of you who has no sin cast the first stone. And then bends down and writes on the ground again. And then it says, beginning with the elders, the older ones, they all began to walk away until the only person left was the woman. So there was no witness to condemn her any longer. And Jesus looked at the woman and he said, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to accuse you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, then neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. Now, this is an authentic story. It's an authentic historical event in the life of Jesus, but it wasn't written by John, right? It is not in the original text of John. Now, I want you to think about, we have translations of the Bible. All of those translations are coming from manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that were copied, okay? So uh, John writes his gospel. Well, they didn't have copy machines, right? They didn't have printing presses. So his gospel is taken and a church has it for a little while and they copy it. Then it goes to another church and they copy it. And then it goes to another church and they... So now we have manuscripts of the original autograph. The original autograph is the original manuscript of John that was written by John or written by his amanuensis as John spoke this, whichever direction that went. We don't have any original autographs. There is no ancient document where there is a verified, that I'm aware of, that there is a verified original autograph. What they did is they copied these down. The more copies you have available to you, the more you can compare them with each other in case a copyist made a mistake. So if you've got five copies, right, and in one copy there's a difference of a word or a letter or something like that, but the other five there is not that same difference, then you would rightly conclude, oh, well, the person that copied this one just made a, a, you know, a mistake, okay? If you had copies and you knew that these copies were made earlier, they were closer to the original, and these copies were many hundreds of years later. And so if you look at the copies that were made close to when the original was written, and then you look at the copies that were made later, and you saw that there were differences between the later and the earlier, which would you be more likely to trust, the later or the earlier? We would be wise to initially trust the earlier unless you had some other reason to believe that these were not good copies, okay? Um, and I can give you an example of that in the Old Testament. We have very late copies of the Old Testament uh, in Hebrew, and uh, we call that uh, those copies of the Old Testament manuscripts the Masoretic texts. There is uh, there are older copies of the Old Testament, but they're in Greek. What was the Old Testament originally written in? Hebrew. Hebrew. So you're going to want to trust the Hebrew copies, right? And you're going to want to trust those who preserved those copies over the years. So there is a case to be made 
that later copies can still be better than earlier copies. But, you know, if everything is essentially the same, then you're going to want to trust the earlier copies, right? There is this story about the woman caught in adultery is not found in any of the oldest copies, right? Um, this is what, um, there is a note. Um, let me see if, uh, where I put it. There's a note in the, in the NIV uh, that gives us, uh, where did I write that down? Well, here, here's a quote by uh, Beasley Murray from the Word Biblical Commentary. It is universally agreed by textual critics of the Greek New Testament that this passage was not part of the fourth gospel in its original form. Now, again, that doesn't mean it was not a historical event. As we'll see from Beasley Murray just a little bit later, uh, he believes very firmly that this event actually took place, but it was circulating separate from the Gospel of John. It was an isolated story. Um, we even find that in some ancient manuscripts, uh, it is found, that is, this story is found in Luke. Here's the quote that I was looking for from the NIV. If you look at the NIV, this is what it says. When you come to John 7, 53 through 8, 11, it says this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21.38 or Luke 24.53. Again, this doesn't mean it wasn't a historical event. It's just that it's not written by John. Most conservative scholars believe that it happened. However, um, the, the reality is that this was an independently circulated story. Um, Beasley Murray says this, It is clear that the story was not penned by the fourth evangelist or any of the other three gospel writers. Yet there is no reason to doubt its substantial truth. The saying that it preserves is completely in character with what we know of our Lord and quite out of character with the stern discipline that came to be established in the developing church. So in the early church, they would not have wanted to let a woman caught in adultery go. All right. Here's an interesting fact. Did you know the Chinese Communist Party is actively changing the Bible right now? Oh, yeah. So, you know, you'll, you'll hear, oh, no, there's, you know, uh, religion is allowed in China. They're allowed to worship. You're only allowed to worship in official state churches. And they salute the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese flag before the service, right? So... Here's a good example. The Chinese Communist Party has changed this story. It has nothing to do with it not being in the original text of John. No, they don't like the fact that Jesus let the woman go. In the Chinese Communist Party's rewriting of this story, they stone the woman at the end. Jesus says, kill her, and they stone her at the end. Wow. Well, this story is very in keeping with the real Jesus and what he would really do. But it was not 
something that the early church would have been fond of because they were very, very opposed to adultery. Well, when I preached this, the first statement that I made was that it is clear that adultery is wrong and Jesus didn't just dismiss it, right? The woman was guilty of adultery and Jesus didn't say you're not guilty. He didn't say that. In fact, it doesn't even say that Jesus forgave the woman. He gave her an opportunity to change her life. He gave her an opportunity to turn away from this lifestyle, right? So that she could be forgiven and she could be free. At the end, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say you're forgiven. What does he say? Go your way and sin no more. He's all about giving people opportunities, right? There's no indication that she believed in Jesus. She thought he was the Messiah. She was probably just grateful that this rabbi that, you know, they had attached themselves to didn't condemn her and uh, she didn't end up dead. So the question we could ask is why is this story located in John's gospel in most of our translations? Well, first of all, modern translations will indicate, usually in a footnote, that the story is not originally in John, right? Uh, some translations will leave it out, but not many. Most translations, um, you'll find it there. But you'll also find an asterisk, or you'll find uh, brackets or something, and you'll have a note that will tell you what I just told you, or uh, the note that I read from the NIV is a good example of this, okay? Um, secondly, this story is found in a small family of ancient texts that are collectively referred to as textus receptus. That's Latin for the received text, okay? And I won't get into the details of how this small family of texts came to be called that, but suffice it to say, this family of texts, most of them late, as in like 12th and 13th century late, Okay, bear in mind, Jesus, first century, right? Jesus' birth separates B.C. from A.D., okay? So the 12th or 13th century means this is 12 or 1300 years after Jesus. That's when uh, the majority of these texts that, that are uh, collectively referred to as Textus Receptus uh, come from. These texts were used in the 16th and 17th centuries to translate the New Testament into English. Most importantly, the King James Version. Ah. So what happens with the King James Version in the English-speaking world? It becomes referred to as the what? The authorized version. You have people today that won't read anything but the King James. They think the Apostle Paul spoke in King James English right? But the King James Bible, as venerated as it is, as beautiful as it is linguistically, is not the most accurate translation of the Bible, okay? Um, the, the year that is usually associated with the translation of the King James Bible is 1611. Now, there have been uh, minor adjustments to the KJV since then, but it is substantially the same, Right, so that's the early 17th century, and it used this small family of texts referred to as Texas Receptus. Now, I said a lot of them were late, but there were some earlier ones, okay? Um, the, uh, the text that underlies the Latin Vulgate, 
was available, okay? Um, the, uh, the text that is called Textus Vaticanus, right? It's found in the Vatican, and that's a fourth century text, right? But uh, there are many more manuscripts that are now available to translate the New Testament. And some of these are older and more reliable than the small Texas Receptus group available to translate the KJV. One notable example. Okay, so it seems counterintuitive, right? Later translations are more accurate because they're relying on earlier manuscripts. But it does make sense, doesn't it? Okay, because there are manuscripts that were discovered after Textus Receptus, after the King James Bible. So what do you do when you discover earlier and more reliable Greek manuscripts? Do you keep going with the KJV or do you say, you know what, we got we to gotta make some adjustments here, right? And so there have been adjustments made. One notable example of a text that was found very late, that is very early, is um, a manuscript known as Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Sinaiticus, okay? It is the entire Bible, including the Apocrypha, by the way, or some books of the Apocrypha, in Greek. Codex Sinaiticus, just spell the word Sinai, right? Like Mount Sinai. It's named after that because it was found at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai or at the foot of what we believe is Mount Sinai, okay? Uh, over a period of about a decade, beginning in 1844, a textual critic by the name of Constantine von Tischendorf discovered um, various leaves, well, that would be the equivalent of pages, okay, of Codex Sinaiticus. And they ended up going to different parts of the world. Uh, some of these leaves went to Germany, some of them went to Russia, all right, and as a result, Codex Sinaiticus, although it is, um, it, it's it's got some uh, damage to it. So, for instance, uh, you can look it up. By the way, you can look it up online, and you can actually see they they've taken pictures of every single leaf of it. So, if you look up Codex C O D E X and then spell Sinai S I N A I, Cus Sinaiticus, you will uh, about the fourth. Um, uh, the fourth uh, um, in the search results will be the actual website for it. And you can click where it says manuscript and you can look at the actual thing itself. It's amazing. It will open up to Genesis 1.1. And when you look at Genesis 1.1, you're going to go, oh, there's not a whole lot of that there. <laughs> there's like little pieces. But there are, it's, it's really well preserved on the whole. Um, so you take a manuscript like Codex Sinaiticus, and you compare it to, as you translate it, and you compare it to the King James. Okay, are you ready for this? Codex Sinaiticus dates to approximately 350 AD, mid-4th century, right? Guess whether it contains the story about the woman caught in adultery. It's not there. So you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But what about the verse numbers? So is Codex Sinaiticus just start with John 8, 12? Eh. There were no chapter numbers. There were no verse numbers. 
chapter numbers didn't come along until, uh, oh, I don't remember, like 1300s, 1400s. And the verse numbers didn't come along until they start, until the printing press happened, right? So the reason we have verse numbers that are assigned to the story about the woman caught in adultery is because that was, uh, when the verse numbers of versification happened, that was based upon the uh, Textus Receptus text, okay? Have I just bored you or is this interesting to you? Am I making sense? This is what I want you to know, but I don't do this on Sunday morning because I don't think everybody on Sunday morning really wants to know that, okay? Today's translations use more than Codex Sinaiticus. They use uh, what is called the critical text, which compares thousands of manuscripts, including over 5,000 copies of various Greek manuscripts and fragments that predate AD 500. This explains why there are verses found in the KJV that are left out or placed in the margin of more recent translations like NIV, New American Standard Bible, ESV, right? Other examples of this, Mark 16, 9 through 20, the entire resurrection account in Mark is gone. It's not there in the original. Mark ends with the woman, the women, the angel telling the women that Jesus has been raised and the women running away in fear. Well, we don't just have Mark. We also have Matthew. We have Luke. And of course, we have John. We know Jesus was raised from the dead. The earliest testimony uh, coming from the church that dates about three, maybe as many as five years after the event is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 uh, through four, where he says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, listen, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' resurrection is very early, but we have to be honest and we look at Mark and we say the earliest copies of Mark don't have that ending, okay? Acts 8, 37, um, that is, I, I think it's, it, it shares an important uh, theological point. This is with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is called to get up in the chariot with him. Pastor Craig taught on this right here uh, a couple Sundays ago. And the Ethiopian eunuch stopped the chariot after Philip explained the passage to him. It was a messianic passage. And he said, look, here's water. What would stop me from being baptized? Okay. Well, the King James says, you may if you believe with all your heart. Well, that's true, but it's not found in the original uh, of Acts, right? So just because these things are not theologically accurate, that doesn't mean that we need to necessarily include them just because we like them or because we were in the King James. We don't want to lose these ideas, right? We don't want to lose the truth behind them, but we want to know what God inspired the original writers uh, to put there, Okay. So now we're going to bounce over that story. And again, I, I preached on it. I believe it's an authentic story. Um, and if you, you can look it up um, on our YouTube channel, go to youtube.com slash lifewillD and just, uh, I think, what did I call the, the name of the sermon? Hang on, I'll look it up. I think uh, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment is the name of that sermon. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's based on the woman at the well passage. All right, so let's look at this passage. Uh, go ahead and put John 8, 12 up there for me, Autumn. 
Um, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that immediately causes controversy. We're not going to look at the controversy this week. We're just going to look at that verse. For context, we should realize that Jesus is still speaking to the people during the Feast of Tabernacles. One problem with putting the, the woman caught in adultery story there is that it interrupts the flow of John's original. Okay? Um, so we go directly from Jesus saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink to the very next thing, Jesus, a lot of things happen. There's a lot of reactions. And we just looked at the, the reactions, the, you know, the, the, the officials couldn't arrest him and so forth. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't say anything else until we get to verse 12, when he says, again, Jesus spoke to them. I am the light of the world, right? So we need to look at those two. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, okay? And it will become in him uh, a spring of water, okay? Uh, flowing up to everlasting life. Um, and then John tells us in 738 that that's the Holy Spirit that hasn't been given at that point until Jesus is glorified. And now Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Um, so we should see the connection of these sayings to the Feast of Tabernacles and the celebration there, okay? Um, there was, uh, there was a, a practice or a ceremony called the, 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 uh, the ceremony of the torches, okay? Um, this statement that Jesus makes calling himself the light of the world is relevant uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles because of that torchlight ceremony, and it coincided with the water ceremony. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, come, let him come to me and drink. This is after they had gotten these golden flasks of water. They had dipped them uh, in the pool of Siloam, and they came and they poured them out, which we saw was kind of like a prayer for water right? Because they lived in a, a place that required rain in order for them to grow their crops. But in addition to that, part of Tabernacles, and the reason why it was such a beautiful uh, celebration, was this festival of the torches or of the lights. Um, Beasley Murray in the word biblical commentary observes, there was no court in Jerusalem, as in not a court of law, but the, the courts that they would uh, hang out in, stand in, and so forth. There was no court in Jerusalem that was not bright from the light of the place of drawing water. So this is where these torches were lit. Men of piety and known for their good works danced before them. Uh, that is, danced before the crowd with torches in their hands and sang before them songs and praises. So, uh, the water memorialized, the pouring out of the water memorialized the fact that God supplied water to the people of Israel in their exodus wandering in the desert, okay? So what do you think the torches would symbolize if we relate it to the exodus? You remember the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Right? There was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that led the people all along the way. In fact, in one instance... 
that cloud that became a pillar of fire separated the Egyptians from the Israelites when they were butted up against the Sea of Reeds, which the Lord opened and let them go over on dry ground. So um, this memorialized, this pillar of fire that God provided during the Exodus, and it uh, reminded the Israelites that God gave light to guide and to protect the children of Israel. And we see this in Exodus 13, 21, 14, 20, Psalm 78, 14, Psalm 105, 39, Nehemiah 9, 12, and 19. Um, Beasley Murray comments again, as with the water drawing ceremony, the celebration in the light of the lamps will have been associated with recollection of the nation's experience at the Exodus and the hope for a second Exodus. In the wilderness wanderings, the presence of the Lord with his people was manifested in the Shekinah cloud, the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, which saved them from would-be destroyers. That's what I told you about the Exodus a moment ago and guided them through the wilderness to the promised land. It is linked with the Old Testament faith in the Lord as the light of his people. Okay. Jesus said, I am the light. Jesus is our pillar of fire. Amen? Amen? He's the one that goes on before us and guides us. He is the one that protects us from the enemy. That's very, very powerful. If Jesus spoke these words now on the last day, as it says, 737 says, on the last day, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Um, then it may have been all the more significant because some historians, Leon Morris of the New International Critical uh, Commentary of the New Testament, thinks that this candelabra that provided all of this light and festivity was not lit on that night. If so, Jesus would be emphasizing that in the absence of the light that they'd enjoyed over those previous days, he continues to illuminate the darkness. And Jesus, unlike those torches, right, or the candelabra, is not a temporary light. He's the light that never goes out. Messiah is prophesied and promised to be a light to the nations also. That's Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 49, 6. And then uh, this is spoken by the uh, prophet who held Jesus in the New Testament in Luke 2, 32. So the Lord speaks to many more than the Jewish people. Um, so this Feast of Tabernacles was for the Jewish people to remember their exodus. But now Jesus is saying, not I'm the light of Israel. What does he say? I'm the light of the what? Of the world. He's the light for the entire world. And so as a result, um, through Messiah, Israel becomes a blessing to all people for all time, which is what God promised to Abraham. The guiding light for Israel was the law of Moses. However, God's law was being obscured by, as Jeremiah said, the lying pen of the scribes, and also by the misguided tradition of the elders, which is what Jesus was coming up against consistently when he was healing these people on the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't just trying to stick his thumb in the eye of the Sanhedrin by healing on the Sabbath. He was showing them that their tradition was, uh, was something that they um, honored above the law, okay? Um, and in fact, if you remember the story that is in the Synoptic Gospels, um, Jesus accuses them of disobeying the law because of their tradition. 
they had a tradition called uh, Corban, right? C-O-R-B-A-N. And what that meant was if they dedicated something to the temple, then it couldn't be used anywhere or in any other way. So Jesus said, um, you say that whatever I might have that could help my parents is unavailable because it is Corban. I've dedicated it to the temple. And he said, so you disobey the law of God that clearly says, right, uh, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother in the Lord for this is right. You're disobeying God's law in favor of your tradition. These are the things that Jesus was coming up against, okay? Um, the statement specifically is from Mark 7, 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So in contrast to this, Jesus embodies and fulfills the law and the prophets. John 1, 17, we've already read, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Um, and then uh, Jesus said in the, at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, right? What did Jesus say at the end of his time on the cross? And it's right here in John, John 19.30, right? The Greek word is tetelestai. It is finished. It is complete. It is fulfilled. And then uh, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. If you want to know what God thinks, if you want to know what God wants, if you want to know what God commands, you look at Jesus. You don't go poking around and trying to find 613 commandments in the Old Testament and try to keep all of them. We can't do it, right? Nobody was able to fulfill that. Jesus did. In the prologue, we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. So what does this say? He says, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. So Jesus is the life light. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The religious leaders believed that no prophet arises out of Galilee. We already observed uh, that Jonah did. But additionally, one of Isaiah's prophecies of Messiah, Messiah and we, we read this around Christmas, by the way. One of Isaiah's prophecies about Messiah refers to Galilee. Okay, um, remember this from Christmas? The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who live in the, in the land of darkness or in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Do you know what land this is referring to? That's Isaiah 9.2. Isaiah 9.1 says, But there will be no more gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, those are two tribes, with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious. Listen, by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's exactly where Jesus ministered. 
That's where he opened his ministry. That's where he began to shine his light. So indeed, he was the light of the world. And it says uh, on the other side of the, the, the Jordan, this would have been in this region that was now, in Jesus' day, was occupied by many Gentiles. Well, Jesus promises that he's the way to eternal life. He also shows us the way to live our lives as people created in God's image. Apart from Jesus, we stumble in the darkness, even if we light the way with our own dim and smoky torches. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 50, 11. Look, all you who kindle fire, who encircle yourselves with torches. Walk in the light of your fire and the torches you have lit. This is what you will get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. That's the way of the flesh. That's the human enlightenment. Um, Jesus said the way of the flesh does not profit. Instead, it leads to torment and death. Remember what Jesus said in uh, John 6, 63. This is what we see going on today in our time. There are those on the right and the left politically who believe they hold the moral high ground. The right holds views from the past, some of which are godly because a Christian worldview was followed by the majority of people in the U.S. prior to the mid-20th century. However, there are traditions and practices conserved from the past that are not right or just, like racism, idolatrous, idolatrous uh, patriotism. The left believes they are enlightened or woke and act as though they possess the moral high ground on every issue. They reject the Bible and eschew traditional Christian beliefs and morals in favor of cultural Marxism. Compassion is purported to be their pursuit, but bigotry, sexual permissiveness, gender confusion, and supporting the murder of unborn children are not compassionate views. There is a way we're supposed to be and to live. God created the world and made human beings in his own image. We must follow his created order, not the delusion and the desire and of, or an erroneous self-image. So I've said this many times, if you follow Jesus, the left is going to think you're too far right, and the right is going to think you're too far left, right? You just follow Jesus. There's just things that he taught that don't fit into anybody's uh, worldview today. Um, and then we realize that everybody falls short, okay? Wherever you are, uh, wherever you stand politically. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. All fail to live up to God's glorious standard except the Son of God. When we follow the Son, He's the light. Our path is lit by His truth. And we may be forgiven when and where we stumble. If we admit to the sin. Right? What does it say? 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then I'll conclude with this. This is from the Psalm, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What is Jesus called? The word, right? Yes, the light of the world. But he's, the, he's the word, right? So he's the word that is the light into our path and the lamp into our feet. All right? That's as far as we're going to go tonight, and uh, we'll join you again, or you'll hopefully join us again next week. God bless you.